90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> well, so w- actually we're back because last week, whether you <laughs> noticed it or not, there was no show. Yeah, <laughs> which is ironic since we were together. We were. We were physically together uh, because you came to pick up uh, the sample handler that I've rebuilt for your magnetometer and drive it back to Oklahoma, which is why we couldn't record. Exactly. Um, It was the last week of field camp, which is understandably always ridiculous. And I know you had a user group going on. And then I sped up there and said, give me the stuff you've been building. And we threw back some beers, and yeah, now we're back in our respective areas actually recording the show we're supposed to do. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was great. You know, you had the the gravimeter with you, which I haven't seen in years, and increased <laughs> the value of my house by about thirty percent when it was in it. <laughs> That's right. I just came to uh, to <laughs> to let you say hi to old geophysical equipment. That's what I was doing. <laughs> yep. Oh. And, you know, we, uh, I demonstrated the sample handler to you, and it is significantly quieter and faster than the old one, if I do uh, say so myself. <laughs> yes. Um, it was really funny because we unloaded it once we got back here, and uh, one of the master students that's in our group was saying, you know, is this going to speed up? Like, she was trying to be real nice about it, right? And she's like, do you think that we might be able to do runs faster? <laughs> And I just like burst into laughter. I was like, yes, it will be significantly improved from the 1993 version that we have now. (laughs) And as you said, you know, you can't hear it because modern motors are awesome. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's I I don't even actually I don't believe I'll be able to work in there without hearing the the very distinct clicks that mean it's, you know, going through its motions. So I'm going to constantly be on the phone with you. I I don't think it's working, John. I can't hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so in the process of thinking about what we should talk about next in these shows that are in between the inner and outer planets, uh, I thought, you know, we've talked about a little bit about the sample handler for your magnetometer. That's not terribly interesting. It's just a lot of mechanical parts. Uh, but how do you actually measure those really small magnetic fields in the rocks that you've got? Uh, yeah, so I have to say, I am both really excited to do this show, but also really embarrassed because <laughs> I don't know how we do it. It just it magically goes in the machine and then it comes out, man. <laughs> <laughs> Like, uh, I remember having to do, this was actually not very long ago, a couple of years ago. Um, I thought, okay, for our seminar, I'm going to do this. How does a magnetometer work? So everybody knows how it works. And, you know, we talk about the squids, which we talk about on here, superconducting quantum interference devices. And then we got into this weird Josephson's gates. And I actually talked to four different professors because I said, I don't know how this works. And all of them said, I don't know how this works either. (laughs) And so my lecture was basically about the sample handler. (laughs) (laughs) But that's why I keep you around, John, because you're going to tell me how my equipment works. (laughs) So I actually did something, gasp, that I don't think a lot of people that have your system have done. Uh Uh-huh. Is I sat down and I read the manual. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, it is incomprehensible to me completely and utterly because, <laughs> as you pointed out, like the circuit diagrams and everything in there are hand drawn. This is some old stuff that's happening. <laughs> you know, it, it is some older technology, but really not a lot's changed. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely will say the manual was written by engineers for engineers and aliens. Uh, absolutely. Which is why I said, cool, I'm going to stick this rock in here. Repeatability? Yes. Okay, done. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I stopped because, yeah, this, um, just like you say in here, you know, this Josephson effect is kind of how these really high-end magnetometers work. And I'm interested for you to tell me how. <laughs> so the Josephson effect, believe it or not, uh, okay, if you hear something like Doppler effect or Josephson effect, you generally think that was probably discovered in, you know, 16 blah or 17 right. blah. Uh, no, the Josephson <laughs> effect was predicted in 1962 and not actually observed for several years after that. Uh, see, this makes me feel really good because most of the, you know, PMAG gods were definitely in college then, if not already out. So, yeah, great. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it was predicted, and actually a Nobel Prize was awarded for that work uh, in 1973. But it has to do with the weird, weird world of quantum mechanics and quantum tunneling. Yeah, uh, yeah. See, this is where we got lost when we started to try to think about this. Because these little Josephson junctions or Josephson gates are how you actually measure it, which is what I was looking for. And then it's all about like a single electron jumping back and forth, right? Oh, it's real complicated. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> it, the a Josephson junction fundamentally is two superconducting materials that sandwich a non-superconducting material. Okay. Yep. So now we need to back up and talk about superconducting. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this means cold. That's what I know, is that we have to have our magnetometer cooled with liquid helium, which is at 4 Kelvin, in order to induce superconducting conditions. Yeah. So if you have metal, like copper that we make most of the wires out of in your house, you, you want something that you're going to transmit electricity through to be low resistance, right? Exactly. Because if it has resistance then that's going to result in power dissipation, generally in the form of heat, uh, which can bring you back to the mechanical engineer's old adage of anything can be a fuse. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, you can have copper wires, you know, melt right half in two. So that's because they have resistance. Superconducting materials are pretty much zero resistance materials. And so we have to do that like I said, using liquid helium, but I see you've got a note in here that, and new magnetometers, they don't have to have liquid helium. So is this a change in the material that can induce superconduction at regular temperatures? Yeah, so most superconducting systems that are cryogenic are with various metals. Right. Uh, so you, you take something that's a good conductor when it's not superconducting and cool it down and suddenly it becomes a superconductor. Right which you know this was named, but someone in the lab said, wow, that's really super conductive. Uh, <laughs> that stuff always sticks, man. You got to watch out what comes out of your mouth first. <laughs> yep, you do. Uh, so in, in a metal, you have the, the electrons. So electrons are this, uh, in metals, are this electron C. 
they're, they're pretty loosely bound. They can fling back and forth between atoms of, let's say, iron or copper or aluminum or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're at a relatively high energy state, and energy has to work. You have to do work to make them move, so resistance. Right. Okay. If you cool it down, these electrons slow down and drop to lower energy levels. Okay. And they can actually, a current can flow through the metal without bumping in to ions in the metals. This oh, way. wow. Okay. So, I, I never knew this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you lower resistance. Now, there are room temperature, quote, unquote, superconductors, not mm-hmm. cryogenic superconductors. Right. Uh, a lot of those are things like YBCO uh, and other. They're not metals. They're okay. so ceramic-like materials. Ah, okay. Ceramics hmm. seem to be amazing classes of material because everywhere I look we're replacing something that's traditionally been a metal or a more complicated compound with ceramics. Which is kind of hilarious because it's not like that's new tech or anything. Right. (laughs) I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming the way they're manufactured is, you know, and they're probably on the angstrom level of thicknesses, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting that that's the new thing in town. Yeah, and so uh, actually, if you're interested in room temperature superconductors, Ben Krasnow, uh, who has the Applied Science YouTube channel, has a video of making his own YBCO room temperature superconductor. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Well, well, we just got derailed there on this uh, how to build the next magnetometer. (laughs) Right. Uh, Let's go back to to your magnetometer. Yeah, my, my really old tech that needs to be at 4 Kelvin. Um, to, to operate. But uh, yeah, so these Josephson's gates or Josephson's junctions. So you've got these two superconducting materials with something that's non-superconducting in between it, right? Right. And the non-superconducting bit is generally pretty thin, you know, tens of angstroms. Oh, geez. Okay. Uh, so we're generally talking about this being manufactured by a deposition process, uh, like a semiconductor fabrication place would use. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear things like Josephson Junction or, you know, talk about transistor junctions. In my mind, I always think of like, well, you get a plate of aluminum and you put it on the table and then you get a plate of something else. You put down. No, no, this yeah, is all, these are... you can't see it. It's tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are little bitty inch by inch squares or something, right? And then, like you just said, angstrom level on the inside. Yeah, and even smaller than inch by inch. Uh, yeah, so, well, yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so uh, you separate these and you can actually get a DC current to flow across the insulator because the electrons can tunnel. Is this like, like in Star Trek where we do this (laughs) whole, you know, beam me up business? What is is electron tunneling? (laughs) Yeah. So this is the same type of thing that we would use in uh, a tunneling, microscope for examining really small things. Uh, So traditionally, in in regular old physics, a particle (laughs) would hit a barrier, and that's the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But now this physics with no rules called quantum mechanics. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I mean, this is how we get things like tunnel diodes and quantum computers, which there's a conference on coming up. Uh, yeah, I and, still don't understand that stuff either. <laughs> and scanning tunneling microscopes. Uh, so 
it's it's often thought of in terms of like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so a quantum object could have more than one fixed state. See, now when we start talking about this, <laughs> like to me, it's impressive that in 1973, this stuff got, you know, how do you figure this out? <laughs> uh, like everything else in physics, you do a lot of math on the wave equation. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that dumb wave equation. <laughs> it just keeps coming back. It sure and, does. <laughs> without going too far down the rabbit hole. Of, Let's not. Yes. So <laughs> you actually can get the current flowing across this Joseph, Josephson junction. And that current is proportional to the phase difference of the superconductors on either side of the junction because electrons are particles and waves, so they can have a phase difference. Okay, great. So now all you need to do is measure that difference, right? And there you go. Right. And so here is where electrical engineering types will perk up. <laughs> so if you put a DC voltage across this, okay. you get an AC current out. Okay. So it is a voltage to frequency converter. This tiny little thing. Okay, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And there's also the inverse of that. Oh, so you can put an AC voltage on it, and you can get a DC current out, or a D AC current, DC voltage. So it is a frequency to voltage converter. Okay. All right. So now, not that I understand all of that, but this seems a little easier now, because now we're talking about stuff that we can start to um, quantify. Yeah, and so this is one of the uses of just a Josephson junction is to make crazy voltmeters. <laughs> like teeny, teeny, tiny. Like picovolt meters. <laughs> Stuff that you would never think would even, you know, have current running through it, right? It's so tiny. Yeah, and so, I mean, when you look at, you, you go to Harbor Freight Tools and you buy a little two, two, two and a half digit multimeter. Mm -hmm. You might be able to see down to millivolts, maybe. Probably tens of <laughs> millivolts or Aww. hundreds on a Harbor Freight meter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with very good lab-grade instruments, you can get to nanovolts. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of instruments that when they changed the definition of the volt years ago, they had to go and redo all the cow labs. Oh, Wow. Because nice. the change in the definition of the vault resulted in the instrument being inaccurate. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, so now you can do picovolts, so three orders of magnitude smaller than nano, so you're down 10 to the minus 12 volts. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, and remember, volts are they're electromotive force. They're the, the pressure in the whole water analogy that everybody uses whereas current is the flow of water or the flow of electrons right mm -hmm. um and it turns out at nist and uh the Nat national bureau of standards national yeah. institute of technology that is down in boulder uh, just south of me ah. that is where the josephson junction that defines a volt is no kidding yep uh, well, i believe that's real it, exciting <laughs> i want to say it was 400 and something megahertz uh was the frequency to voltage property that they use oh wow that's yeah. super cool hmm. great um so you got these tiny volts 
where do these squids come in? Because we've got three squids, like I said earlier, superconducting quantum interference devices that are on the magnetometer that are measuring these rocks in the X, Y, and Z directions. Right. And so a squid is made of two Joseph injections. Okay. Super tiny. Great. And you connect them in <laughs> parallel. Uh, so they're often drawn and probably deposited on silicon actually as a ring. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. And so when you get a magnetic flux that's going through these, uh, current is produced in this that flows against the flow of current in one junction with the flow of current in the other junction. Okay. And you can think of it as a magnetic flux to voltage converter. Okay. Great. So that's very loosely in the <laughs> ideal world. You, you get magnetic flux and you would get a change in the voltage or current depending on how you're doing your setup. The problem is that would be really hard to measure because you would have to have something sensitive down to those kind of pico levels. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got to ramp it up a little bit. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So here's where we're going to go off the deep end. Uh, <laughs> we're not I, there yet. <laughs> but before I bring, bring us back and we talk about what cool things you can do with these magnetometers. Uh, <laughs> The only cool thing you need to worry about is looking at ancient magnetizations and rocks, John. I don't know. Well, th there are some pretty neat ones. Uh, we'll see about that. So in your setup, after reading the manual and looking through the schematics and doing a little bit of reverse engineering, uh, what your magnetometer does is set up a small DC current that goes to the squid. Okay. And it's about 20 microamps, so small. Tiny. Yeah, which you don't want to do too much through this. You can saturate these junctions. Uh, and I would imagine that you can also probably burn them up, literally. Yes. <laughs> uh, so. Yes, you can. <laughs> they put this current across it, and that causes an AC voltage to appear across the sensor. Mm -hmm. So now you have magnetic flux to frequency, basically. The, the period corresponds to the magnetic flux okay so more or less magnetic flux the period of the ac waveform changes okay again that's hard to measure <laughs> especially <Yes. laughs> when it's in the many hundreds of kilohertz to gigahertz okay depending yeah. on the junction setup that makes so, sense then uh, are you familiar with phased lock loops no, I mean, it seems like something I might be able to figure out after a while. So <laughs> they create a magnetic flux that actually is by a little deposited thing on the squid uh, where there is a 200 kilohertz alternating magnetic flux that they introduce. Oh, okay. All right. So so the squid sees a constantly changing 200 kilohertz field, and then you stick your rock in, and things change a little bit. Ah, okay. So all that was all pre-setup stuff. Okay. All that's right. pre-setup. So now you know the 200 kilohertz field that you're feeding the magnetometer. Right. Mm -hmm. You stick your rock in. Something slightly different comes out, and they go into this phase-sensitive detector. 
that looks at the difference in phase between what you're putting in and what you get out. Okay, yeah. And that is used to generate a current that goes to another coil on the squid to null the magnetic field from your rock and get back to just seeing the pure 200 kilohertz flux. Okay, so it's created a disturbance in that flux, and now it wants to get rid of that disturbance because it wants to go back to what it was before, and that difference is the signal I'm looking for. Right. So it, it uses the tiny coil on the squid to create a magnetic field that exactly cancels the magnetic field of your rock. Great. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And so instead of a phase-locked loop, as is often used in many signals applications, uh, like FM radios and TVs and all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, this is a flux-locked loop. Oh. Okay. So all we have to do is change amplitude and phases of waves. These are things we can do and measure very well. I don't... Oh. I just, I feel like maybe we don't spend enough time talking about electrical engineering at science (laughs) because everything is going to break down into like these very, I mean, I say simple, they're not simple, but you know, these things like currents and amplitudes and right. This is crazy to me. Well, so any measurement that you take in the lab, whether it's temperature, whether it's composition from some crazy surface characterization instrument, Uh, whether you're measuring radiation, whether you're measuring magnetic field, it is fundamentally represented by electrons, be that (sighs) voltage or current that you're measuring. Uh, Yeah, we don't spend enough time on this. That's that's real weird. (laughs) So no matter what, if if you're measuring uh, force, you know, like your bathroom scale or like a load cell in the the hydraulic press that I use for my work, Mm -hmm. that is a force to voltage converter. Okay, yep. And so then we can measure the voltage. So everything, it's just like in a computer system, everything is represented by zeros and ones. In the world of transducers and measurement, everything is represented by a current or a voltage. There you go. And you're working in quantum mechanics, which has no rules, and linking it (laughs) back to (laughs) to just good old physics too, right? Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Okay, interesting. So what does... What does the squid look like? Because, you know, all I have are boxes, and they say, here's the squids, and that doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) So the squids in your magnetometer are actually deposited directly on the circuit board. Okay. So they make the circuit board, they put all the passives and other active components on it, and then they stick it in uh, various deposition chambers, and they deposit the layers of material that make the squid right on the end of the board. So it's already, the board's already built? It's like the last thing that happens? Yep. And I, where do they know how to stick that thing? I don't, that's, okay. Go ahead. So <laughs> uh, I don't know the exact process. Of course, they don't go into that in the manual. Well, I'm assuming yeah. <laughs> it's pretty much vacuum vapor deposition, but I could be okay. wrong. Hmm. Uh, there could be some lithography processes or other things in there too. Okay. Um, but in your case, niobium film is the insulator. And aluminum oxide is the superconductor. Okay. Great. So in a non-cryogenic magnetometer, it wouldn't be aluminum oxide. It might be one of these ceramic things. Exactly. Okay. All right. And that, that makes a lot of sense. You remember that inductor that I talked about that coupled a 200 kilohertz magnetic flux into your system? Uh-huh. 
It is one by one millimeters. It's so tiny. <laughs> and it's it's also directly <laughs> deposited as part of making the squid. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, so it goes with it. Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. th- that inductor and the nulling coil are both built onto the squid. Oh, that, mean, that makes sense because squids are used for all kinds of these things that you're going to tell me that are cooler than stuff I do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's not just specific to like a cryogenic magnetometer that measures rocks. It's specific to any magnetometer that's measuring these tiny, tiny magnetic fields. Yeah, I mean, squids, I would say paleomagnetics is potentially one of the more niche applications. Oh, yeah, well, it's very hipster of me, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what's crazy about all of this, though, is that it's, it's recent technology. I mean, okay, it's old. It's from the 60s, but yeah. it, I, I know half the listeners just threw their phones across the room. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we don't think that's old. Other people might. <laughs> but it hasn't changed. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I mean, I mean it's it recently changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. This whole non-superconducting thing is kind of crazy. But it still works the exact same way. It's just a different material for the superconductor. That's real interesting. So, you know, we have to go through this laborious process uh, every year or so of putting liquid helium into our machine to stay you know, in superconducting. So, I mean, these new magnetometers that are heliumless, they're very hush-hush about what's happening, but it sounds like all they are is they just change the squids to have this non- or this superconducting at room temperature thing in them. Yeah. Interesting. And, I mean, I- I'm sure it's not just that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Th- there's got to be some <laughs> some other secret sauce in there. Yeah. But fundamentally, it's not like, oh, well, we totally rethought how squids work. No, oh, physics okay. physics knows how squids work. <laughs> um, physics knows. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what's really neat about this is your squids are constructed with a lot of the processing electronics on board because these mm-hmm. are tiny signals still. You don't want to pass them through long wires that are antennas and are going to pick yeah. up everything else. <laughs> yeah, because these are real tiny. Like, my rocks are not magnetic to, you know, a regular magnet you would hold around, be carried around with you. Right. So the uh, the actual output of your squids is just plus or minus 10 volts. Oh. Fundamentally. Okay. So uh, mm-hmm. off the board comes a plus or minus 10 volt signal that then goes to the processing boxes that are sitting on your desk that take that signal and convert it to a digital number uh, with an analog to digital converter and pipe that out to a computer where then a calibration is applied. And finally you have your magnetic field. Fabulous. This makes total sense. Um, the next time I want to do this, I'm going to have you come and give this talk or I'll just make my class listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So I was curious how sensitive squids are. Mm-hmm. And the the answer is how patient are you? <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense because when we have really magnetic rocks, we only stick them in for a short amount of time, and then when we have ridiculously non-magnetic rocks, we have to stick them in for a long time. Right. So, if a, a typical refrigerator magnet is about a hundredth of a Tesla, which is the unit of magnetics, yes, our magnetic field. So, 0.01 Tesla for a refrigerator magnet. Okay. If you are patient and measure for days to weeks, 
<laughs> you can do 16 orders of magnitude better. <gasps> That's awesome. So you can get 10 to the minus 18th Tesla's resolution. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, so I could potentially do that with my magnetometer, huh? Yeah. This has changed a lot of stuff, I'm, I'm going to say. And what's <laughs> really bananas is so anywhere there's electrical current flowing, there's a magnetic field, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks, Faraday. So, yep. uh, <laughs> Right-hand rule, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you can measure with squids magnetic fields resulting from activity in the heart and brain. Yeah. MRIs, right? No. Oh, no. No, no, so because that M oh no, M MRIs are magnetic resonance. Resonance, yeah, uh huh, yeah, that just came to me. Yeah, no, you can oh. place a squid <gasps> above the heart oh. of an animal and see the magnetic field from the activity in the heart. <laughs> That's awesome. It's it's about That's a tenth awesome. of a nano tesla or so. Oh wow, um, that's super cool. What have we have we done this before? Like, oh yeah, are we using this. This is awesome. So it's being used to image uh, magnetic activity in the heart and the brain of animals. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. And so that's, that's you know, like I said, the, the nanotesla to sub-nanotesla range. The Earth's magnetic field for reference is about 70,000 nanoteslas, highly dependent on where you are. Right. Yeah. Uh, your rocks, I don't know exactly what the typical magnetic flux you get out of them is, but I would guess in the hundreds of nanoteslas. Yes. Yep. Somewhere around in there. Yeah. Uh, guess I should know because you should know. <laughs> You've taken that class, John. <laughs> it, it's been a little while. Uh, <laughs> it's no excuse. <laughs> there is a free book if you are totally enthralled by paleomagnetics. Uh, a textbook <laughs> by Butler that you can download the PDF of online. Uh, yeah, it's still great, even though it's a little bit older. Just like John said, this stuff hasn't really changed a lot, and. He, Bob Butler, is absolutely hilarious. It's actually quite a fun read if you're into that sort of thing. Yes, it's uh, actually, we should get Bob on the show. That would be. Uh, yeah, yeah, that would be. Yeah. Good. So, uh, one of the other crazy things you can do with these, other than look at the magnetic field of a heart, yeah. uh, is you can make a gradiometer. Geophysicists love gradiometers. <laughs> I why because you have to you have to attach them to 500 car batteries is that why <laughs> no so if, if you're doing a magnetic survey of an area the magnetic field changes with a diurnal cycle mm -hmm. and there's noise from space things and you know let, let me take a couple more fields and marginalize their importance compared to geophysics there uh so yes. space weather something 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 um with what we have to do is you either have a base station magnetometer that stays in one spot and records all day while you're out doing your survey and you use it to remove the change that happens during the day to the magnetic field from your survey data mm -hmm. or you have to have a point in your survey that's like home base so you'll go take a few readings come back to home base go take a few more readings come right. back to home base and you assume a linear change in between those visits to home base and you assume that the magnetic uh, properties of the rock below you aren't changing. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is generally fair. Um, gradiometers are where you have two magnetometers separated vertically 
and you look at the change in the magnetic field between them or the gradient. Okay. Gradiometers yep. cancel out these diurnal time varying changes by their nature because you're just looking at the change between two points in space. Mm -hmm. So you can strap a gradiometer under your belt uh, and look real funny, but, <laughs> but go and walk or drive your whole survey and you don't have to worry about what happened to the magnetic field during the day. You can skip that entire post-processing step. So why don't we do this all the time? It's expensive. Just because you got to have two of them? Or? Yeah, I mean, if you got a cesium vapor magnetometer, let's say, something that's uh, a fast sensor that we would typically use for field geophysics, mm -hmm. uh, you're probably spending 15 to 20K on each sensor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. But... And, and well, and also they, they have to be separated by feet, you know, where a, a meter or two is nice. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the further the separation, the larger the gradient, the less sensitive the instrument has to be. But at some point, there's a limit to how big of a thing you can walk around with. <laughs> no, the only limit is the number of undergrads you can coerce into helping you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you're doing it on like an airplane, then there is a fundamental limit because you're generally trying to fit this thing into a stinger that sticks off the back of the plane. Ah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, with squids, they are so sensitive that you can make a gradiometer where the squids are only 25 centimeters apart. Wow. That's awesome. So you can have this nice little tiny compact package that you can stick in the, uh, the tail of a plane, fly over the ocean, and find submarines and decide if they're diving or turning or all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so lots of DOD type applications there, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, that's probably where we should stop so you don't get, you know, called in to do some questioning. Uh, uh, hold on. Somebody's at the door, Shannon. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> abort! Abort! Yeah. No, so that's, uh, that was the coolest thing about squids for me as somebody who's had to carry around gradiometers in the field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's awesome wow this this makes me this gives me such insight into um my machine that three years ago i probably didn't really understand at all so i mean that's the good part about all these breakdowns that we've complained about probably since the inception of the show is that now i'm a lot smarter <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing to be scared of it's all voltages in the end exactly that's that's what they told me <laughs> hmm Interesting. Now, now, granted, there are a lot of adjustments on your squids that you take yes. a little non-magnetic screwdriver and hold your tongue at just the right angle. Oh, gosh, it's so true. You just have to breathe on them hard to uh, get them to go back where they're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> but that is how all analog electronics is. Analog yeah. electronics are uh, delicate. Because yes. you think yes, about it, you're are. trying to balance flows of electrons to measure something in the physical world, which is kind of crazy. Right, exactly. Quantum mechanics has no rules into actual physics, too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> well, you know, speaking of technology and changes in technology, I think it's a perfect segue into this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> um, I am constantly amazed at how doing these Fun Paper Fridays, we seem to keep coming back to the same core concepts and this one is no different <laughs> yeah so this was submitted by someone on slack quite a while back uh, um and it is the at least the second popcorn themed paper <laughs> that I, we've had 
I feel like it's more than the second. We're going to have to go back and uh, and look at this. And I was really hoping that they had actually referenced the popcorn paper we'd had before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this paper is called Popcorn Driven Robotic Actuators by Saron et al. <laughs> I mean, this is real interesting, but <laughs> the practical applications have yet escaped me, despite their efforts to um, talk about what those things are. <laughs> I am very curious as to how this came up. <laughs> yes. Yeah, really. I mean, is it a class paper? I don't I don't know what they're doing in the Cornell Energy Lab. But <laughs> you know, I don't think so. And I, maybe we can get to some of the more interesting uses. But uh, first, we should just go over what exactly did they do? <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, popcorn and robots, it goes together, right? Um, <laughs> so as we've talked about in our old papers that we've done about popcorn is that the popping of corn, it, you know, it exerts a significant pressure, right, when it does it. And so can you kind of harness this um, to drive robots? Yeah. So you heat a unpopped kernel up to about 200 degrees Celsius and the pressure inside gets to about 930 kPa, which is almost an atmosphere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or for those of you that think in, you know, the weird units of pounds per square inch like I do, <laughs> uh, that's <laughs> not quite 14 PSI. So it's probably in the neighborhood of 10 PSI. There you go. Mm -hmm. um, a third of a car tire. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, popcorn kernel? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> And then it pops and expands to some very large number volume-wise compared to its unpopped state. Which is much different, which we learned about in a, in a last Fun Paper Friday, is the shapes of kernels. Um, so the shapes of those different kernels you can actually harness for different purposes based on, you know, whether they're going to be irregular or like those weird like bulbous ones and things like that. Yeah, and so they tested different types of popcorn in this paper. Uh, one of the essential things being how expensive is it? Because if you're yes. using popcorn as actuators, they're clearly uh, single use. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, um, you but can't reverse them. <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, <laughs> that'll be a fun paper in a couple of years, probably. Um, but also that they're biodegradable, which is one reason you might want to use them and just like you said the cost it could be relatively inexpensive depending on what you're trying to do so the only thing i could think about when i was reading this paper and they're doing all these calculations is you know the movie where the airplane hits the house with the laser and the house blows <laughs> apart because of the popcorn and then they tested it on mythbusters and tried to blow apart houses with popcorn yes <laughs> yes i know where i know where you're talking about yeah so <laughs> same idea of can we do useful work with popcorn? Because really it's a pretty simple actuator. You apply heat, not that much heat, and things happen, and it's pretty reliable. Uh, so one of the things they used in their experimental setups, which I didn't know if you had, is nichrome wire? Oh, is yeah. That that? Yeah, I figured you'd be all over this. <laughs> I, I have some of it. Uh, I figured. <laughs> So it's a, it's a wire that, and I believe you actually have some of this in your magnetometer, tying this back. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> But it's a wire that when you apply a current across it, you can get it to heat up. It's like what's in your toaster. 
Okay, great. So this is what they use. Um, they <laughs> painstakingly wrap these little kernels with this nichrome wire, and then they shove it into basically these silicon papers, and they do origami with it. And how you tie up these little packages of the popcorn with the wire, you can shape um, your little robot whatevers you're trying to do into different shapes, right? You could cause them to curve. When you apply heat and pop the uh, wire, you can cause them, you know, to go from something that isn't rigid to more rigid. Right. So one of the things we didn't talk about is that they did a lot of tests before they started building these actuators to get the force and the time and uh, various other things, bending wire tests. They put them in compression testers and checked what the uh, the modulus of unpopped, popped, and damp popped <laughs> popcorn is. Yes. <laughs> which is gross. Yeah, super uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, they, they did several of these things. They used uh, products from SmoothOn, which is a... You can use a lot of their stuff for making uh, casts of things. Oh, okay. Uh, so, make silicon molds and then do resin casting, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so, they used these, uh, the Ecoflex 30 and Umu 20... <laughs> which have different rigidities, stiffnesses. And they uh, hung a 100-gram weight off the end of one of these popcorn nichrome burritos <laughs> and applied power and lifted the weight up. Okay, yeah, and it goes, it's substantial. Like, it's pretty impressive. Yeah, and then they took it to the creepy state <laughs> and made three of them that would expand specifically on one side and made this weird popcorn tentacle grabber. Yeah, yeah, the popcorn hand is not okay. <laughs> you know, looking at it also, you can see some burned kernels where the nichrome wire was staying hot in contact with the kernels. Mm -hmm. This has to be a pretty smelly actuator. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that burned popcorn is my favorite popcorn, so I'm on board with this. Like, my... I want one-use robots, so then they can't, you know, take over the world, and uh, then I can eat them. <laughs> <laughs> and so th they made a little accordion-looking thing mm -hmm. and yeah. had it expand. Uh, they had three of the accordion origami things lift. Uh, it's one of those exercise weight bell things. I yeah, You can tell how much I'm in the gym. There you go. Yep. <laughs> a kettlebell. Um, they had it lifted up off a plate, and it lifted it a couple inches, it looks like. And this is a nine-pound kettlebell. That's not a joke. Um, and I love that the little thing that they made these little actuators on those out of was they made it out of popcorn bag paper. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's great. Instead of trying to reinvent something that would contain popcorn kernels popping, they're like, hey, this is already a thing. We need a paper that's <laughs> strong and kind of waxy that can resist the heat. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Let's build it. Oh, wait. No. These little actuators say Orville Redenbacher on them. <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, <laughs> and then they did a really interesting gripper design in figure seven. Uh, yes. So here they 3D printed the claws and mechanically actuated them so that when two plates moved apart, it pulled on a cable system that closed the claw. And those two plates were forced apart by popcorn. Popcorn-driven tendons, they say. Yep. <laughs> Creepy. 
<laughs> um, I will say, John, that the best part of this paper, as always, goes down to one sentence, which I, I kind of think that this must have been the impetus for this, is that um, this recent publication from Shintaki et al. indicates an emerging field in edible robotics, to which popcorn lends itself nicely. Mm. <laughs> What? Edible robotics? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... <laughs> what is wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> and by you people, I clearly mean engineers. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so they, they also talk about things like making jumping robots, where popcorn is a power source. But, right. y- you know, thinking from a more geotechnical engineer type standpoint... Um, I could see this being useful somehow for like waste remediation or all kinds of stuff. Like you, you need to move something underground. You can shove a bunch of popcorn kernels down a borehole and seal it up and apply force. Yeah, I like it. It's kind of like not completely reversible fracking, but that's kind of what I was thinking of um, is that you've got these popcorn kernels. You can shove them in there, expand them, and then eventually they're going to you know go away at least a little bit. So... I don't know what that application is, but you have that option now. <laughs> well, so after they were popped, in two weeks of submergence in water, they were gone. Yeah, see? So there you go. Yeah. And so you, know, you get almost a 10 times volume change on average with a huge variance uh, yes. <laughs> on this. And the nichrome wire is a relatively simple actuator. And in cases where you need cheap disposable robots that are single use and don't need to move that fast why over-engineer a complicated solution that's going to get left at the bottom of a mine or under the ocean or whatever when popcorn will do it. And then you're going to eat them when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a, this is a great find. So um, thanks. Uh, thanks to the Slack chat room for digging this one up. <laughs> yeah. So if you are doing some actuator experiments of your own, whether that be of the microwave or a nichrome sort, with popcorn kernels, have tested your favorite kind of popcorn and whether buttered or unbuttered aids the <laughs> lubrication to prevent granular packing. We would love to hear your results. Uh, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com and one of us will get back to you on that email. I can't wait for these pictures to come in with this popcorn. Uh, also, you can tag us on twitter at don't panic geo john is at geo underscore lehman i'm at shannon doolin um and as always we're on the slack chat room the software underground.org on the don't panic channel and thank you to all of our patreon supporters if you need more popcorn <laughs> and edible robots in your life please uh, think about supporting us patreon.com slash don't panic geo and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.